Good afternoon, and welcome to Digging Deep, the farm show on WDRT 91.9 FM. Coming from Viroqua, Wisconsin, and streaming live on the internet at WDRT.org. And this is uh, the last Saturday of the month, and I'm Philothea Beeson, and instead of Who's in the Kitchen, we're doing a farming show once a month called Digging Deep. And I began this show with a friend of mine, Alan Philo, and he's with me one last time. Each time we go, we say, this is the last show. But we've had three shows up to now. We're going to wind it up. Uh, We've been doing a history of farming uh, to kind of give it a context, to give... uh, give people a reminder of what what farming is and how connected it is to feeding ourselves. And um, so welcome, Alan, to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me back. Um, Hopefully at least one last time on this subject. (laughs) That's good. And um, yeah, uh, Alan brings us a lot of things to consider. And uh, I thought maybe we would talk a little bit about um, where we've been in the last three shows, just just briefly, what we tried to do, and you said how many years, how many centuries did you cover right. in so, one hour? <laughs> so the um, so the initial um, program that we did, depending on when you want to say it started, covered probably somewhere around six thousand years. Uh, the second one... Beginning cov- with what? Beginning, beginning with what we consider the start of modern agriculture. Which is like staying in one place and planting something. Huh? Uh, yes. Okay. Started in the Fertile Crescent. Um, at, the scientists would say that, that was, they call it the Neolithic Revolution, although even that term is coming to some question. But um, yeah, so then the second program, so that went from the start of agriculture up to the spread of agriculture kind of around the Mediterranean. We stopped there. The next one went to the spread of agriculture through Europe um, and up until the um, Columbian Exchange. So I would say it covered probably another 3,000 years. Then the third program we did went from the Columbian Exchange up to, I'm going to say roughly about the mid to late 1800s. So um, an a lesser time period there, probably of about 300 years. And so now in this program, we're going to talk, um, and, and this has been kind of sort of global, more global in scope, larger geographic areas. And then in the last one, we started really focusing on just what's happened in the United States. And and in this one, you know, we're going to cover maybe 100 to 150 years, and it's going to be very much focused on the U.S., but then also because of what has happened with U.S. agriculture and how that's influenced the rest of the world. So at the end of it, we may end up taking a little bit more of a larger geographic step back to talk about what's happened worldwide. But we're really going to focus on um, what happened in America over the past 150 years and um, how that has gotten us to where we are now. Thank you so much for doing this. And I have really appreciated it. And, And if you didn't know there was a farming show and you're interested in getting some background, you can go to WDRT the archives and look up Digging Deep. Jim, is it under Digging Deep or is it under Who's in the Kitchen? Okay, so you can find this show under Who's in the Kitchen. 
and go back and see how Alan has gone through these centuries and built up a, a historical foundation. And Alan's the one who came up with the idea of calling this show Digging Deep, and I'm so glad. I, I see that now that it was just that was a, a great title. And uh, also, he had the idea of going back and getting a history of farming. Uh, my idea for the, the farm show is not to just say what cattle prices are this week. You know, a lot of farm shows ended up being price of price of corn and soybeans and things like that. I don't even know if there are any farm shows on TV anymore like that or the radio shows. But anyway, this is more um, to really look at all the different issues of farming and their you'll realize, as I have, it's so interconnected. There's no simple um, description or no simple answer to the problems that we have, no, no simple description of the problems we have or even or the successes we've had. Seems like we've had both. Um, so uh, Alan, Alan is from uh, Dodgeville, outside of Dodgeville, and he has a farm of couple of hundred acres, I guess, and he raises um, Norwegian Fjord horses. Yeah, we raise Norwegian Fjord horses, and we raise sheep and goats and um, sometimes dogs. Meat goats, mainly. Meat goats. No, it's and, not a dairy farm. And meat sheep. No, we, we do not milk. We may choose to get a uh, like a cow for our own private milk consumption, but... Uh, that would be about as far as we'd go with milking. Right. So. But it's not a factory farm. This is a couple, and they are working their own land with, with their machinery, and they're very, very hands-on. I, I visited the farm. They definitely know their animals, and they know their land and their soil and their feed, and I'm just so impressed at the depth of knowledge that, that you have. So I'm really glad to have you be on the show. And so this is Alan Philo. Yeah, so we'll kind of pick up where we stopped last time, which was um, kind of right at the edge of the Homestead Act. So what we had talked about in part was settlement patterns in America, how America had uh, really has a history of extractive forms of agriculture and also um, kind of abuse of land. And that's simply just because it had an excess of land. And this is just sort of, uh, you can you can look at the history of of humans and you can see that usually when we have a resource that is in great supply we abuse it and don't think about the fact that it might stop you know run out at some point well we don't think of it as abuse at the beginning well we be think of it as you know just uh entrepreneur or you know uh yeah we just we we are looking at what our needs are and and in some ways you know, it, it looks abusive, and then at the same time, it's like, okay, I farm this thing for 25 years and I move on. It's in a degraded state, but then probably no one is else is going to touch it for another, you know, 50 to 100 years. And there are a lot of things that are going to regenerate on that land in the meantime if it's not to a degraded state where the ecology of it is completely broken. But um, that got us to what uh, the, kind of the settlement of the eastern uh, forests and that got us to people moving west to Oregon and Washington and California and settling there and what we were left with still in the late 1800s um, is uh, a vast open area in the middle of the country on the Great Plains 
And as we talked about, due to technological reasons, like the difficulty of slicing through a uh, very deep sod um, and and some other cultural factors that Europeans actually didn't consider that, they didn't consider grasslands uh, places for farming. Um, you had an area of the country that was less populated and less settled than the rest of the country. And this brought, uh, but w we had the tools then at that point to begin kind of farming it. Now, remember those tools are directly related to industrial development, better metallurgy, better, easier ways of creating metal plows where the metal plows become cheaper and the machinery becomes cheaper. And it's it, and you have the ability to effectively get, uh, um, use power more efficiently to break up the this ground that is difficult to get into. And, and here we're talking about like literal horsepower, right? So it's, I'm hitching up to horses and I'm, I'm using the horses to break this land. So uh, this was, a, uh, so what happened kind of next in American agriculture um, after <clears throat> the Civil War uh, is really becomes different because this is where you really start moving away from even, I, I would say like a homesteading um, mentality, you know, up up till then, there were a lot of places where people were moving, but you were just moving to uh, create your homestead. Um, and what you weren't necessarily doing because it was hard to transport bulk goods, because remember roads weren't good, so unless you're near a river or a canal, um, you know, it's hard to transport large quantities of bulk goods over distances, especially with without any machinery at all. That's why you see like the Erie Canal gets built because it becomes possible then to get goods out of like Ohio and get them all the way like down to the Great Lakes. And then you can get them, you know, um, eventually to the Eastern seaboard where there's larger populations. Um, but what really started to change America, of course, was the railroad. The railroad yes. made it possible to take um, bulk goods and transport them to population centers. And that then also creates the ability to like cash crop on large scales. And also at the same time, um, you know, we've talked several times about how the ability to cash crop is also partially related to having labor, having the power, the energy to create an excess on your ground and then sell that other places. And that's exactly what we see start to happen during this time period. You have uh, first what were some very rudimentary and eventually became quite beautiful uh, machines, very well balanced, very efficient machines um, that in terms of being able to hitch them to horses and use horsepower to create um, actual like physical power to do jobs. But remember that whenever we do that, what you're doing is replacing human power, right? So that is a that that is a more efficient use of power from in terms of man hours so that means that i can produce a lot more food with less man hours and that means that i probably have an excess of food beyond what my family needs and right. i begin selling that in the markets okay so when you say homesteading that was still more of a self-sufficiency type of view of you know a family has has some land and they grow what they need and I would even say, like, again, expand out of just family, expand to small town community. Okay. Like, if you look at, I was really struck one time when I was in Ohio, where I, I have family, uh, I had family close to Bowling Green, Ohio. And you would go out there and um, you would drive and there was just like a, like this small town, like every, 
10 or 15 miles. And, and uh, very close together, but very small. Little town center, you know, where historically there had been, you know, a general store and like a, some sort of farm store and places you could get things. But um, what, what, it, what it was was that these, it wasn't that the farm is self-sufficient, but you can think of like the community is more self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. So the community can bring in some goods from outside to, to make, uh, you know, like maybe some manufactured goods and things like that. But, you know, you're going to have a town blacksmith. You're going to have a town um, skilled carpenters and things like this. So the community as a whole can service all of the different needs, not mm-hmm. just the farm. Remember, the farm is just producing something. You know, the blacksmith isn't farming. The skilled carpenters aren't farming. You still have division of labor even in these places, and that's, right. that's, that's necessary. That's not self-sufficiency. And so it's not yeah. self-sufficiency, and I just kind of want to say it's like, so what you really have is like we just kind of keep expanding that circle, like bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you could mm-hmm. say. And I think the problems that come with that are problems of anonymity and problems of maybe not necessarily knowing where things come from and not knowing who's producing your food or not even knowing who's producing your horseshoes, you could say. And so there's anonymity that gets built into that. And with anonymity comes the ability to maybe not know if somebody's doing something honestly or, right? It, it creates its own problems, but it also creates more efficiencies inside the system from a human perspective. Mm. But with, uh, with railroads, this really opens up both things. It's like now I can get way cheaper goods that come in from uh, the East, right, where I'm producing, I mean, just really practically like nails, right? So instead of, um, nails have always been produced, but they're incredibly laborious to produce by hand compared to what you can do in a factory, right? So I can go from maybe using, um, in um, it makes different, even different forms of uh, building possible. So mm-hmm. I would go from maybe doing timber frames to doing what is called balloon framing or, or stick framing today, where I can have like easily repeatable, um, you know, two by fours, easily repeatable nails, easily, easily repeatable screws. And it allows for like standardized construction instead of basically having like a master carpenter come in and individually cut all of the different beams Make for his your own house. For- <laughs> right. And he's making his own trundles. And so it opens up the ability for this exchange of like easy mass produced goods coming in, but then also like massive quantities of food leaving. And both of these things are like feeding into each other. Sort of ironically, what happens too is you get the Homestead Act, which is kind of funny if you think about what I just described, because you actually sort of have something that is moving away from what we would say is just homesteading, right? Um, Into more of like this larger like kind of all tied together cash economy. But what the Homestead Act was is it it said that we have all this federal land like out west and you can go and if you work that land for five years and you create a stake, um, you know, so you would have to go register that with a local office and say, this is the land I'm going to work. But if you work that land for, I believe it was five years, you get, I think it was 150 or 160 acres. Wow. It's just yours, right? So um, to put that in perspective, uh, if you were to take a land price of $10,000 per acre, which is not a ridiculous land price. You mean for now? 
for, for right now, <laughs> right? And I was to say, okay, you're going to go work that land for five years, and at the end of that, I'm going to give you 160 acres. Well, I just gave you $1.6 million, mm-hmm. right? So that that's an incredible transference of wealth, right, from, from the federal government basically is just giving it to the people. Now, of course, that's not exactly what's happening because what does the government get to do once you have that land? is it starts to get to assess taxes. So that land is sitting there doing nothing and it makes nothing for the American government, you know, but as soon as I can get somebody on it and working it, like it starts to generate the motivation. That's the motivation. It starts to generate tax income. It yeah. starts to generate income for the government. Um, and un- unfortunately this also goes together with the policies of basically um, wiping out and moving off the last of the um, Native American tribes from the western parts of the country. I was just going to say, the government land was actually land that was occupied by the indigenous people. That That's mm-hmm. that's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, I, I do want to point out here too, uh, that we have to be also be very careful not to romanticize um, what that meant though. Like even, even indigenous people working their land. You know, for instance... Um, I've been reading a really interesting book by Richard Manning called Rewilding the West. And um, one of the things that he points out in this book is that the Native Americans, particularly like the Sioux and the Cheyenne that we think of, even as early as the early 1800s, were fully integrated into the American economy. They're not out there doing just subsistence things. They're actually harvesting buffalo pelts for export. And, and there are instances in which, you know, I, I always think of this because in Dances with Wolves, right, there's this scene where they're going out on the bison hunt because they're going to replenish what they need for the Native American community in terms of resources. And they come over this rise and there's just all these bison that have been butchered and the hides have been taken, but they're just left there. And, you know, what it's really saying is like, oh, look, at look, these these buffalo hunter white people just showed up and they're just taking this part of it and they're they're killing off what's going on here. But there's actually all the way back to the early 1800s, the Native Americans were doing very similar things because they were part of, of the buffalo hide trade. So they would, for instance, trap buffalo in the winter, trap bison in the winter in big snowbanks, and they would kill more than they needed for food because they were harvesting the pelts to ship them back right. to the East Coast. So right. it's important to yeah, just know there that demand. there was a demand. Uh, everybody in this situation is is human, and we make human decisions. And um, for you know, and and my point there is just to say. Like, I don't necessarily agree with everything that happened with with the way that the American government um, did this, but it's also important to say that it's not like we would have had this perfect, pristine ecosystem if if that had not occurred, because these were people, too, that had been uh, brought into the basically American trade economy, and there were consequences from that, too. So... Um, but what we have is this: these policies that have basically removed the Native Americans. We're giving all of this land away to the American people, and we basically quickly get the rest of the settlement of the central part of the country. And what what, what era is this? What dates are we talking about the, of the Homestead Act? It was uh, President Lincoln that signed the Homestead Act. Um, in fact, it's around in, 1860, somewhere in the 18 early 1860s. Early, yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, my family. Um, this was a this is a family story that I believe my great grandmother or my great great grandmother 
actually burnt deeds for land we didn't have anymore that had been signed by Abraham Lincoln. Oh, <laughs> right? So ouch. Like, she just burnt them and they actually had his personal signature on these. That's how, and that, that gives you a really different um, picture of how close the American people were to the government at the time. Um, you're listening to Digging Deep, a show on uh, farming. And I'm Philothea Beeson, and I'm talking with Alan Philo, and we're just covering um, the recent history of farming, last 150 years. And uh, we're at 91.9 FM and streaming live on the internet at WDRT.org. This is Community Radio, coming from Viroqua, Wisconsin. So... Continue, please. So at, at that time, too, we have, there's a lot of policies in the U.S., and the policies are really pointed towards settling land, bringing in people. Um, it, it, remember, this is like the time of very heavy immigration as well from Europe. This is, you know, when Ellis Island is open, and we have massive quantities of people coming into the country. And part of it is because the land is, uh, we're, we're trying to fill the land up with, with settlers to do the kind of agriculture that we want to do. And then the other thing is, is we have massive industrial projects that require huge amounts of manpower. So we're building all of these railroads and we're building all of this infrastructure. We're building brand new cities. And so we need manpower. So we're bringing it in from outside of just the population in the U.S. Right. And why are those people leaving Europe? Um, because Europe has become overpopulated and partially because of the success of many of the crops that had been brought over from the Columbia Exchange, like potatoes, right? Um, I think I said that in the second episode. There's a direct line between somebody taking a potato back to uh, the the old world and then Norwegians growing those potatoes in Norway and it leading to a population boom because of because it was better at producing calories to people leaving Norway because of overpopulation and and possibilities for you know your own land and prosperity in America and Norwegians settling in Westby Wisconsin so you know all of the whole thing is tied together mm. you know through this through this you know very long story it's kind of all one story so we have all these, all all of this, uh, basically energy being poured into this project. It's a it's a time of massive population growth in the U.S. It's a time of um, you know the industrialization industrialization of the United States. A huge amounts of wealth are um, created and accumulated. This is the time when we think of you know like the big uh, the big robber barons or you know um, institutions and things that we still have today. You know Carnegie. Carnegie Steel is developed during this time, and we still have mm -hmm. things that are remnants of that. Carnegie Hall, um, Carnegie Libraries, right? Like mm -hmm. these things still exist to this day that came out of this time frame. This is when the Vanderbilts acquire all their, their wealth. This is when the Rockefellers acquire all their wealth. And it's all about, you know, basically all of the wealth that's suddenly able to be extracted from the natural resources in the U.S. and how that gets to markets and who gets right. pieces of it along the so way. So I'm thinking, and I'm just a naive bystander with a little bit of knowledge, but it seems to me this is related to coal. Um, some of it's related. It's, you know, energy. Because how do you run the trains? Yeah. And how you make the steel. That and it's just so all these cities are, you know, you see Pittsburgh and, and uh, you know, that's Cleveland. correct. This is this is when the steel belt gets gets built, 
right? Um, and you have coal coming out of Appalachia and even actually where I grew up in Boone, Iowa, we had a coal mines there. It was a dirtier coal. Um, it's not the nice, not the nice anthracite coal that you get out of um, uh, the mountain deposits in, in Appalachia. But yeah, coal is powering things. You have the beginning of oil um, extraction at this time and the kind of the oil booms and busts that start early on. And um, what, but what the main, the major next big thing, at least to me, that happens, and that really starts to push, um, push towards where we are today, is when you hit both world wars, because the world wars are times in which um, there is massive quantities of technological innovation. Um, you can look at the world that we live in today, and aside from a lot of the electronics, we live in this world that was created by the technologies of you know World War One and Two, uh, four wheel drive that gets invented in World War One, right? So just even like on a practical truck scale, right? It's like that's a World War One technology. Hydraulics are something that gets developed in World War Two. So all of the hydraulic equipment and everything that we have today, that directly comes out of that time period. But there's all sorts of other technologies that come out. So World War One, you know, there was motorization. You know, cars had been invented and, and um, there was... Uh, airplanes had been invented. Airplanes had been invented. But all of these things suddenly rapidly speed up and become things that are much more useful and, and take on a very different, a more finished form um, after World War One, So that's when you really start getting like the motorization of the United States and the building of, the starting of building of major highways and things like that. And, and, and also tractors, getting tractors out into uh, farmland. And you start seeing the replacement, at least in part, of animal power, right? And what, what does that do? What does it do when we take animals off the landscape that were being used for power and replace them with more machinery? Well, actually, it opens up more land for actual just food production, right? Because now this ground isn't being used to produce hay to feed the horse or for pasture for the horses that are your source of power. Now you have more land available. That is actually where we can grow crops. And now we have more power that we can um, exert, right? Because... Uh, and, and, and when I say power, I mean like from a physics point of view. Like we actually have a way of taking energy that's trapped in oil and gasoline and we turn it into actual mechanical power that we can use to cut down trees, to plow soil, etc. And um, And so it also allows for breaking in of lands that had been even still very difficult to break into um, with horsepower. And this is when you see... Um, Really, I, I think that in the 20s especially, you see the application of these technologies to the detriment of the environment in a major way uh, throughout the 20s. And then what we end up with is the Dust Bowl in the 30s. Because what, what this allowed us to do was to break the hydrological cycles in the center part of the country. Remember, um, our, our country is very big, it's very vast, and it has a lot of different climactic zones. We live up in what is still pretty much like a temperate uh, very temperate zone. Um, historically, it transitions either between tall grass prairie or between forests, right? But both of those are very wet ecosystems. When you get down into uh, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, those are much drier areas. And um, there are hydrological systems 
for basically re the recycling of the water that is in that system. Um, and so if there are small, uh, it, it, like any place that has even some forest cover is probably really essential to what, the way the hydrological system is working there. And so when I start removing things and I start disturbing that, what happens is I can dry the whole area out. It's a brittle area and I can dry it out and it becomes prone to desertification and massive drought. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we see happening in the 1930s after the application of all this new sort of mechanical power that we have that we're putting onto the landscape, which is a, a direct result of kind of what's happened in World War I and the, and the further development of these kind of machine technologies. So um, the 1930s is actually an interesting time and an important time in our country because part of what it does also is it makes us very aware as a country that we have the ability to like destroy things on this kind of scale. And it grows way outside of, of just the initial area where it started, you know, like those droughts and things, they really start down in the Southwest and they keep growing and growing and growing and it starts breaking hydrological cycles farther and farther and farther away until you get, you know, dust bowl conditions in Iowa. Right, which is a place that shouldn't experience mm -hmm. these kinds of things, and and now we're getting into times where like I I can tell stories that I've heard from like my grandmother about needing to close all the windows in the house because the dust storm was coming, and you would get like an inch of dust, you know, soil, an inch of soil being deposited in your house from these storms. You know, it's just incredible amount of devastation. Um, and along the, with that, you have, um, you know, the Great Depression and all sorts of like difficulties that are happening in, in the 30s. And I don't exactly know how all that would have, uh, how we would have gotten out of all of those situations if, frankly, it wasn't for World War II, right? How did a war get us out of that? <laughs> well, because what the war did was, you know, it really ended the Depression. It got a lot of people back to work, right? Because the government had to spend a lot of money, whether they had it or not you know, to fight this war. And the other thing that happens is World War II, and I'm, I'm kind of moving quickly through, you know, kind of from 1900 to probably about 1950 here, because the, the really interesting things about where we are now happen during and after World War II. And in particular, it is the further development of technologies like I talked about, like hydraulic technologies and things like that, but also more importantly, the development and refinement of many chemical technologies um, that occur in World War II that then after World War II get transferred into agriculture, which remember is like a huge market, right? If I have bulk goods and I need to like get somebody to use them, like the uh, the farming economy is a great place to, to Put stuff right. So, it, just as a practical example, um, I have a product where, right, um, I might say that it could be used at a rate of ten gallons per acre, right. So, um, on a corn crop, you know, some fertilizer or something. And what ends up happening is, well, we grow ninety million acres of corn in this country. So suddenly, I have a nine hundred million gallon market, right, <laughs> for that product. Right, the numbers just add up really quickly for something like that because there's so much land that is under cultivation in, in the U.S. Um, and there's there's a number of technologies that are really developed towards the end of the 1800s and, and the beginning of the 1900s 
that reach their full fruition due to the kind of mastering of the technologies around how to make them really efficiently um, in the in the uh, in World War II. So I'm going to talk. One of the most important ones is the Haber-Bosch process. Uh, are you familiar with that? No. Okay. Could you say that again? <laughs> the Haber-Bosch process. So it's okay. H-A-B-E-R dash B-O-S-C-H. So the Haber-Bosch process was a process that was developed in Germany. And remember that Germany in the late 1800s and all the way through the first part of the 20th century, and really in some respects today, is a place where a lot of these technologies are invented and come from. Mm-hmm. And the Haber-Bosch process is a process for taking nitrogen out of the atmosphere and fixing it in a mineral form. So we have, uh, um, well, I'll start with nitrogen is most often the most limiting factor of growth in most uh, plant ecosystems. It doesn't matter if I'm in a forest and it doesn't matter if I'm in agriculture. Nitrogen is the thing that is often the most limiting factor in terms of allowing for a lot more vegetative production in that system. Oh. So, and the and the, the air is full of nitrogen. In fact, our atmosphere is mainly composed of nitrogen. I believe it's like over 70% nitrogen, N2. It's actually the predominant gas in our atmosphere, not oxygen, right? But N2 has a, has a triple valent bond in it that's really, really hard to break. And so there's only a couple ways that N2 transforms into a form that is available for plants. Um, one of those is through uh, um, uh, nitrogen-fixing bacteria that are on legumes. I've heard of this, and I never really understood what was the importance of nitrogen-fixing okay. bacteria. Well, the nitrogen-fixing bacteria are really important because that's how you get more nitrogen built into the to an ecosystem. Um, and so, like, if you take a legume, so this is like alfalfa or clover or peas or beans, and you go out, and when they're you know, mid-season, if you dig them up and you look at their roots, they have these bumps on the roots, these nodules. And those <laughs> nodules are bacterial colonies. And if you cut them open, they're bright pink. And what's happening is, uh, without getting too complex here, basically these are anaerobic bacteria that live inside a root nodule created by the root and they are running specific processes that they're being fed sugar by the plant and they're running specific chemical processes in which they're taking N2 and they're breaking it apart um, through enzymes that they excrete and then they're fixing it into uh, ammoniacal forms then eventually into different proteins and then eventually what happens is the plant cuts off that association, stops feeding those things sugar, those die, and then the plant basically eats the bacteria. Um, it sucks the nitrogen and all those proteins and stuff out of the bacteria, and then the nitrogen goes into the plant. Okay, So this is how nitri one way that nitrogen can get into the system, and it's the kind of the most common way. There's also free-living nitrogen-fixing microorganisms that just live in the soil that aren't associated with legumes. And in, in most ecosystems, what happens over time is that it builds up to a certain level of nitrogen that is roughly um, adequate, depending on what the, the, the ecological conditions are for that area, to allow for optimal plant growth. Right. And this is without adding anything to the soil. It's a totally natural 
occurrence right. in and, plants. Right. And remember, like when humans aren't involved um, to remove things, right, these p- things can just run for hundreds of years and you build up, you can build up excess nitrogen in the system in form of um, kind of complex organic matters that build up in the soil and and um, the system reach this is these are just natural processes however we figured out that we can sort of simulate that same thing through massive quantities of heat and pressure we can also break this bond and this is the Haber-Bosch process and the Haber-Bosch process takes uh, nitrogen directly out of the atmosphere breaks it in breaks it into pieces and then fixes it in uh, mineral forms so that could mean like ammonium sulfate or ammonium nitrate or it can mean um, like urea and all of these different mineral forms of nitrogen okay so remember I said that this is one of the limiting factors in plant growth so and this has been recognized for a long time Uh, before we developed these kind of artificially made mineral fertilizers we were doing things like going and mining guano from like islands in the in the Pacific. Um, in fact, there were, I believe there were even some wars fought over these islands. So that, that it's manure from it's, bats, right? Well, that's manure from birds, but oh. then there's also bat guano. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And then there's also things like Chilean nitrate, which are just kind of natural deposits of these nitrate salts that occur in Chile. And so there, there are ways to get at mineral fertility, but, but they require going somewhere, mining it, um, and then long distance transport, you know, all of this mm-hmm. happening at times when those things were all very costly. So it made these mineral forms of fertility very costly. But isn't just cow manure and, you know, animal manure? Cow farm, manure, yeah. Cow manure and those things are, are rich in this. But the thing is, is there's always, you're always removing part of the nitrogen, right? So I have, I feed cows a bunch of alfalfa hay and they make milk and I take the milk away. Well, what is milk full of? is full of proteins. What is the basis of most proteins? Nitrogen. So you're always, re- in a farm setting, you're always removing nitrogen. You're always removing nitrogen. You're always part removing of the it. cycle. Uh-huh. So you have to bring it in. And so this Haber-Bosch process allowed us this very, again, energy efficient way in terms of transport of getting this uh, mineral fertility to farm fields. So this is like one of the major developments that comes out of World War II is we have suddenly have access to this form of fertility that is a huge limiting factor in, um, in agriculture. And one of the other things that's, that comes out at this time is we come out with all sorts of pesticides um, after World War II. Now, many of these are actually like neurotoxins that we basically figure out that we can dilute them way down to the point where they don't kill people immediately, but they'll still kill insects, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the 1960s, you have the first herbicides developed. Paraquat gets developed. Um, so you have your first like broad spectrum herbicides where we're starting to get to a point where instead of like dragging steel through the fields to kill weeds, we can just spray something on. That and grew out of Vietnam? Uh, no, that's pre-Vietnam. No, that 1960 is okay. about when Paraquat gets developed. Um, but you basically what you have is the reason these things are getting developed is because I now have kind of what I would say are like mature chemical industries that now can just experiment and try different things and see what I made this random molecule. What does it do? Like, let's go figure Mm, it out. Oh, uh look, it kills this kind of weed. Great. Okay. Um, Better living through chemistry. Better living through chemistry. And then you get also the other kind of major confluence at this time is you start getting hybrid plant breeding on a major scale. Um, 
so for instance, uh, you get Nor Norman Borlaug, who I think a lot of people have heard of, um, is doing a lot of projects in which he's uh, creating hybridized strains of corn, hybridized strains of wheat. He eventually, um, these kind of projects develop wheats that are, um, right, so we've talked about wheat before, icorn and emmer wheat, kind of these uh, land race wheats, and then there's a lot of wheats that come out of that, you know, like uh, red turkey wheats and all these things, but they're very tall plants and because um, they're basically grasses. And if you get too, the head of the grain too big, it lodges, it falls over, and then that can ruin the grain or it ruins the plant, right? So one of the things that gets developed at this time is dwarf wheats. So you can, you make the wheat much shorter, you make the stock much stronger, and now I can apply these mineral forms of nitrogen and I can get way higher wheat yields because the plants mm -hmm. can, can effectively hold up this like larger grain set that gets developed because of these mineral forms of fertility. Mm -hmm. Similar things happen with corn, et cetera. And all of these things together come together to form what we call like the green revolution. Okay. Okay. And the green revolution is a time where basically a massive explosion in the productivity of agriculture. So mm -hmm. to give that in like real terms, Right in 1900, like a, a good yield for corn might have been 20 to 30 bushels per acre. And after the Green Revolution, it's 100. Right? So it's a 3x increase in like the total producti productivity. Of a it's, it's massive, right? It's a mm -hmm. massive increase. Now, um, and, and it's even gotten more. You know, since then, you know, it's like I know a lot of farmers that easily get 200 bushels of corn oh my gosh. per acre. I know people that have gotten 300, and I th believe the present record holder is 468 bushels of corn per acre. Does it have the same nutritional value? That's a whole other question for probably a whole different uh, podcast, okay. but it has a lot more energy in it, right? Uh -huh. And energy is really the base unit. There's there's right. nutritional consequences and everything here too, but energy is really what is necessary for population expansion. And what you can see is that the Green Revolution has caused a massive population boom around the world. Now, there's a lot of things about the Green Revolution that probably aren't good, right? Um, there's a lot of environmental degradation that's happened because of the Green Revolution. There are most of these chemicals that have been developed, especially the early ones, have been banned by now because we've figured out that they cause people cancer or <coughs> Parkinson's Ooh. or all uh -huh. sorts of like difficult mm -hmm. things, right? Um, but they also created a whole lot more people. So I don't they know how you... They created more people and they fed more people. They created I mean, more people fed, and it fed more fed people. Fed as many people as they created, or at least they grew it's, you know, in relation to each other, right? That, that's correct. Right. And, uh, and so it's caused this massive population boom. And you could actually say that like the Green Revolution has actually led to the massive quantities of environmental degradation because the most degrading thing you know, in for most things on the planet is just when we put more people on it, oh, right? <laughs> so it's, it's very difficult, but it also creates this quandary because you can't really roll the clock back, right? I can't just say like, well, that shouldn't have happened or let's stop using those technologies. We can't technologies. deny people food. You can't deny people food because mm -hmm. if you were to go back to pre-green revolution levels of production, you'd basically have to decide which three quarters of the world population you want to get rid of. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. I just want to take a break and tell you that you're listening to a farming program called Digging Deep on WDRT Community Radio com- coming from Verroca, Wisconsin, 91.9 FM, and streaming live on the Internet at WDRT.org. I'm talking with uh, Alan Philo, who is giving us a wonderful, very rapid (laughs) overview of agriculture. This is the fourth show. If you're interested in listening to the earlier shows, you can go to WDRT Archives and look up Digging Deep and hear the first three shows that we did on this. Now we're on pretty much uh, American agriculture, but also Western agriculture. And um, I think we have a few more minutes of our show. Yeah, and I, I think it's long enough to kind of spell out, you know, now kind of like where we are, because this is, yeah. Okay, I want to make one point that we didn't really cover, and that is the discovery of petroleum and mass production of petroleum, because that happened, I think, in about the 1920s. Uh, you and you actually had petroleum um, was being you started to be utilized in the late 1800s, um, and yes, petroleum has made a lot of these things possible. Now, all of these things are related to petroleum because petroleum is a massive energy source that allows for basically the display like it allows for very few people to have to farm if they don't want to. And I'm just going to be honest: most people don't want to farm uh, because it's difficult. Um, because it takes long hours and you have to actually like enjoy it and like it. And most people have given the choice, uh, tend not to do that. Our parents moved off the, or our grandparents moved off the farm for a reason because it was a difficult life. Now that's not to say that we haven't lost something because of it, but it's just to say like the reality is, is a lot of people don't want to do this. Yeah. Well, now you look at farm machinery and it doesn't, you know, a plow doesn't just plow two furrows at a time. I mean, you have <laughs> one machine and one man, one human being driving it. And it does, what, how wide, how wide can you do oh, it? Oh, you what can the, do, it's, it's massive. There are 32 row corn <laughs> planters, you know, and this is why in the spring you'll have situations where you'll like be watching like how much of the U.S. is planted and you'll go like over a five day period. You can watch Illinois go from like 20% planted to like 95% planted in a four day period. Mm-hmm. And that's an incredibly huge amount of land. Right. And it's just people can get out there with machines and they can do it really quickly. So petroleum has made these things possible. Also, petroleum and cheap energy is what makes mineral fertility possible. Petroleum and cheap energy is what makes pesticides and herbicides possible because they're made from petroleum. Um, So all of these things are related to our energy economy. And if petroleum went away, most of this would collapse. Right. Um, Because we don't have a replacement for for petroleum or and the energy that it the, provides. and the energy that it provides. <clears throat> However, what it's made now is a situation in which we still have massive overproduction of food, especially in this country. Um, uh, you know, for, for instance, just you know, very easily, thirty percent of the corn crop of this country goes to make ethanol. We put it in our gas tanks. Um, we're is not, that an improvement or what? It's kind of like I. That's again. You should have a whole podcast just on that because it's a fascinating subject. Is it energy positive? Is it energy negative? Is it a good use of land? What does it do ecologically to the land? But that's 30 million acres of ground that's being used basically to produce something that isn't a food, right? You often hear things, um, there, there are things that operate around agriculture where you hear people say, we need to feed the world. We need to, you know, make sure there's enough food for everybody and, and, 
Um, right now, at least in America, that's sort of like a that that argument doesn't make sense to me just because of the way that we're using the food that we produce. But you also have other problems, for instance, which is whenever you increase the food supply, the human population increases, which is that's just a biological. It's so ironic, you know, you can't keep up. Yeah. So if I say like, well, we need to figure out better ways of doing agriculture because we need to feed the world of this population in 2050, what you've done is created a self-fulfilling prophecy, because if I produce that much more food, the population will rise to that level. And why is that? It's just a biological just, law. It happens pretty much with every. It happens with bacteria in a petri oh, dish. Every species. It happens yeah. with with deer in the forest. It happens with wolves. If the deer population increases, the wolf population increases, right? It's just a. It's just one of these kind of laws of the way the energy flow works in our world, um, and so you also have you know you have these arguments that I find kind of interesting. People say like, well, organic agriculture is environmentally better. Side note, that's questionable. Uh, depending on who's doing it and how they're doing it. It could be Im environmentally better. It could be environmentally worse. Um, but they'll say, well, organic agriculture can't feed the world. But that's kind of a silly thing to say because no agriculture in the end can feed the world because at some point world population will come up to what world food production is. That was stated by Malthus in the 1700s, Malthusian theory, which is basically states that populations increase um, uh, <coughs> geometrically or exponentially, they cube, and, um, and land increases linearly. So basically you can, you, like population increases faster than new land use. We've been able to outrun that with technology and with opening up basically new parts of the globe over the past mm -hmm. you know, 200 years since mm -hmm. he stated this, but this fact is still there and it's kind of hanging over agriculture you know, in the end. So um, so there's a lot of things I think that you're going to be able to talk about on this podcast going forward. I think you have interesting things to ask about how does, how does um, what does somebody mean when they say that their agriculture is sustain, sustainable or regenerative? I have trouble saying that word. Um, what, is, what are the differences between organic agriculture and conventional agriculture? And what does that really mean? Because you hear a lot of claims on both sides. You know, conventional people will say there's no difference between the kind of food that's produced. Or they'll say we can't afford those lower yields. And then you'll have organic farmers. I worked with a lot of organic farmers over the years. will say I can actually equal conventional yields. I'm more environmentally responsible and my food tastes better. So it's like, okay, well, those are competing claims. So now who's right and why is it interesting? You also have a lot of questions about why do we do animal agriculture the way we do in this country? We keep moving more and more towards these confined animal feeding operations, CAFOs, and we do that because it is a way of creating energy efficiencies in the system that allow for... Um, for the farmer to have a more profitable enterprise sometimes. But there's also a lot of talk about what is uh, rotational grazing? What is mob grazing? What are the proper uses of grazing lands out in the West? How can we, are there forms of agriculture that we can do that are just as productive that also um, are more envir environmentally friendly, that can create more habitat for wildlife, can make more space for wildlife, that lead to lower levels of soil degradation that that could possibly even reverse soil degradation these are all things that are out there right now in agriculture and 
and but they're really not any different than any of the problems that agriculture has ever had in the past. It's just that we have finally reached what I think is the limit of land on the globe. And that's what is bringing a lot of these questions to the forefront. We don't have more farmable areas to expand into. So we have reached the end of that um, exploitable resource that we had at the beginning of, of the United States. We've reached that worldwide though. So now we're trying to actually figure out how do we use this thing in a way that is responsible for future generations. But there's also a lot of other moral questions that come out of it. What kind of population can we live with? What, who, who would decide that? Is that even something that we should talk about? <laughs> right? I mean, these are difficult questions. But we live in a place right now that is a product of the Green Revolution and that is a product of industrial skills of agriculture. It's why we have the urbanization levels that we have. It's why we have the amount of leisure time in our culture that we have because we're not producing food. We can watch Netflix and Amazon, movies on Amazon, right? So <laughs> like the, the whole way that our world is structured right now could be seen as a product of the Green Revolution and of petroleum. And I think that it's going to be interesting you for you to explore those kinds of questions going forward. Gosh, thank you so much, Alan. Talking with Alan Philo, I really appreciate your overview for us, and it really does, I hope, raise a lot of questions and help us to see what a, what a complicated and integrated system agriculture has with, you know, our life, life. So um, I'm so glad that you have, enjoy, have joined us at uh, Digging Deep, which is aired on the last Saturday of every month instead of my regular program, which is Who's in the Kitchen, which continues to air the other Saturdays of the month, all at noon. And I hope that if you've been interested in what we've been talking about today, you might go back uh, to the archives of this show. We did four shows on the history of agriculture. And it does help lay a foundation for where we are today and maybe understanding more deeply the questions. I, I just felt that it was important, having done a food show for about a decade, that it was important to really understand where food comes from and all the complications of it and the implications of it um, for the quality of life on Earth. And so if you don't live on a farm anymore or never tried to grow anything, um, that this might be of interest to you and see why why you might care, why some policies are, are questioned, and uh, just there's just so many um, issues that arise. I was thinking one is is uh, the whole vegan vegetarian idea that we should just get you know we should not be raising animals for food anymore, and that's just isn't that interesting? And why why would that arise? Does that arise out of greater understanding or really a misunderstanding of what you know what it means to get food from the planet and so lots of lots of questions to be lots of places to go thought about so i hope that everyone will get more of an a concept of the integration of all these issues 
And thank you so much for tuning in to WDRT. We're at, uh, we're in Viroqua. We're a community radio station of all volunteers. And I've been talking with Alan Philo on our show, Digging Deep, getting, getting right into the uh, uh, deep soil of agriculture. So thanks a lot, Alan, for being on the show. Thank you. And thank you to my listeners for tuning in, and we'll talk to you again next week.